let's get into class. The lesson today is my final installment on why I am not a Muslim. And I could teach, obviously, on on any of these subjects for a, a, an extended period of time. But what I've tried to do is keep it condensed down to core reasons. And so as we open the door on, on the teachings of Islam one final time in this class, and I explain to you why I'm not a Muslim, what I'm really doing is giving you one reason out of a number of different reasons. Because of the interest of time, I've got to try and restrict it down to something that is digestible. So I don't want you to walk away thinking, ah, that is the only reason. It's not the only reason. It is a sample, a good sample that's, that's probed a little bit deeper so that you can see what it is that really is concerning to me on at least this examination level of why I'm not a Muslim. This is one reason that stands out from the rest. So, if I'm doing that, it's, it's what I've already told you about the issue of historical accuracy. Because we've got to be able to read with confidence that which we rely upon in Scripture as being historically accurate. I think that's even more important if you're going to believe in the Islamic faith. Because the Islamic Scriptures, the Quran are seen to be the, 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 the words of Allah that were imparted in Arabic to Muhammad, that Muhammad would then dictate to others, but that Allah himself secured the transmission of those words with such precision that there is no change, no discrepancy, no polluting, no... Uh, uh, um, alteration at all of the Quran as the transmission of the word of Allah. Now, when I approach anything like this, I like to use something that's not infallible, but really is a director in, in our lives. And that's common sense. There is a lot to be said about common sense. This fella is not exercising common sense in the picture. We want to be people, we need to recognize. Now, common sense is not infallible. But common sense is how we assess things. I was talking to uh, Mark and Wilkie and, and the Seiferts a couple of days ago. They were asking me about how trial was going. I said that the other side had put a witness on the stand last week that sounded very um, professional, that sounded very uh, um, academic. She sounded very intellectual. She, her expertise seemed to be without compare. And what she had done is she had measured the hip implants that had been removed from our plaintiffs. And in the process of measuring them, I didn't have any problem with her measurements. She used her ruler with great precision. Uh, it's not technically a ruler, but the, the machine used to measure these things. But in addition to that, she offered a lot of opinions that didn't have anything to do with measurements. And those opinions just happened to coincide precisely with the position of the manufacturer that I'm suing. So it looks like this nice independent witness from a very good institution who is a professor at this university, West Coast University, it looks like they've brought in this independent professor to say, here are our opinions and this is the way we see it as academics and it aligns perfectly with the company, well, that must mean the company's right. And I had a chance to cross-examine her. And my cross-examination <clears throat> was done with the aid of an Elmo and a pen. 
And I started out and I said, ma'am, the jury's heard about you, and I won't use her name uh, uh, on the internet here. We'll just call her um, uh, PC. And I said, uh, ma'am, you are PC. You are an academician who works at this university. I said, but if we're going to be fair about who you really are, what the jury needs to understand is if this is industry, the company that made the item we're fighting about, I said, you and industry have a lifeline between you. That is blood. You bleed industry. You are so connected to industry that if anything were to sever that, you would die, wouldn't you? She said no. And I said, well, I'm not saying you'd die physically. You would die professionally and economically. And she said, well, I don't agree. And I said, ma'am, we can save the jury an hour if you'll just agree with me now. But if you won't agree with me now, I'm going to walk through some documents and common sense is going to dictate that I'm right. She said, well, I just can't agree with you. I said, okay. I said, first of all, you are a professor, you say, at this university. She said, yes. I said, now, what classes are you teaching this semester? Well, I'm not. I said, oh, okay. What classes did you teach last year? Well, I didn't. I said, what classes have you ever taught in your entire life? Well, I haven't. I said, hmm, okay, interesting kind. She says, I'm not that kind of a professor. I said, no. I said, it's kind of like your PhD. That's the kind of doctor she is. I said, your PhD, you told the jury that you had it in medical studies. She said, I do. I said, you told the jury that's like what doctors do in study. She said, it is. I said, no, it's really not. I said, you got your Ph.D. from this university in Sweden where you went physically to the campus for 10 days. And everything else was done through the mail. And she says, it is not a mail order Ph.D. And I said, I understand that. You did go for 10 days. But it's. When you say it's like what medical doctors do, I've yet to find a medical school where you only have to go 10 days. She said, well, I said, now just common sense here. I said, let's go back to 2009. In 2009, your school said that they were going to cut the funding for your clinic. And you only get paid through your clinic. That means you get no more money. And if you can't raise the money for your clinic, your clinic's gone. She said, well, those were tough times in 2009. I said, I agree. I said, so you went to industry and said, gee, would you give us money? They said no. So you started writing grants to get grant money. You tried to get grant money, didn't come through. So by 2010, you are sucking wind. You're looking at closing down. And you went back to this industry and you said, please, is there something I can do? And you found something to do for them. And this industry since 2010 has funded your clinic 100%. Every penny that your clinic gets, which means every dollar that goes into your bank account, comes from industry. And then on top of that, they're paying you another couple hundred thousand dollars a year to testify in these cases. 
So your independence, I mean, truly, you cut that tie and you're dead. And it went on for another 45 minutes. But common sense is a real appropriate test before you decide, hey, I'm going to believe something, put it to the common sense test. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes common sense can be wrong. It can be. There are some things that are counterintuitive. But we need to be intelligent people and deal with those things accordingly. See, some people treat Christianity... Uh, Some Christians believe that it's just some blind leap of faith off of a cliff. That you sever your head and leave it on a coat rack when you go into church. But that is not the Christian faith. That is a mature and appropriate Christian faith. Jesus didn't come and challenge us to believe in the face of common sense. Jesus came and said, I am the way, I am the truth. And we are to seek truth. When Thomas doubted the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus didn't say, well, just close your eyes, take your head off and believe. Jesus recognized the idea of someone coming back from the dead is indeed something contrary to common sense. So Jesus said, Put your fingers in the holes. Touch me. Feel me. Put your hand where the the spear went through my side. And, and, And offered reasons for belief. So the common sense test for me is one that, that, that is not infallible, but it's one that's very, very important. And when I look at it, and I look at it in terms of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, all of these religions are based in history. They're all based upon this historical accounting. And when I read the Quran, I do not find the history that's recited in Quran to be reliable or accurate. And if the Quran truly reflects the words of Allah, And if Allah has truly secured those such that there would be no alteration, then those words should align perfectly with history. And where they don't, we should be able to see why historical texts are wrong such that the Quran might be right. Now, the one episode uh, uh, of historical fact from the Quran that that I pulled out because it seems to me to be particularly easy to disprove is the one that talks about Jesus being killed or crucified. In the fourth surah, verse 157 in the Holy Quran, we read, For they're saying we've killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of God. In fact, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. It appeared to them as if they did, but certainly they did not kill him. I find that at odds with historical information. Two weeks ago, I went through this in some detail with you. And I went through it not only in terms of of the Quran, but I said, let's just weigh it against other historical sources. Look at the very best Roman historian known to us, Tacitus. Tacitus, who was charged by the Caesars with writing the accurate Roman history of what happened under those Caesars. Tacitus writes of Christ suffering the supreme penalty which was a capital punishment by crucifixion. That's the Roman terms for it, some of the the, the terms. The supreme penalty under Governor Pontius Pilate. We have that history being written by Tacitus within a 100 years of the events. He would have had open to him the records of the government, 
the writings of the time, and he was writing as the best, most responsible historian we've got. So we've got a Roman who's not a Christian, has no affiliation with Christianity, in fact, writes it up as a horrific faith, who recognized the historical fact that Jesus Christ was killed under Pontius Pilate. We looked at Lucian of Samosota. Lucian of Samosota was a Greek writer. And all he was doing was writing uh, satires. We've got a number of his satires. And he was writing about a fellow who was a grifter, for lack of a better way of saying it. A fellow who was uh, um, just, if, if you saw the play The Music Man or the movie The Music Man, he was like, Professor Harold Hill. He was, he was someone who would just uh, exist by tricking other people into paying for his lifestyle. So he becomes a Christian so that he can get free meals from the Christians. And the Christians really do take care of him and give him all of this stuff out of their Christian charity. And so as, as Lucian is writing this up, Lucian is saying that this man begot, you know, tricked in essence the Christians who themselves were worshiping and came from a wise man, a sophist, a wise man who was crucified. And multiple times in his writings, Lucian refers to the crucified sophist who started the Christian faith. It's a Greek recognition to go along with the Latin recognition. Again, quite early, and not by someone who is a Christian. This is a pagan source. You, we can look at Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian who's born within the decade of the death of Christ. He's quite notable within the Jewish people. He would have been in the know. He had quite the education. He's extremely good with all of the languages of his era. He writes very good Greek. It's not phenomenal, but it's pretty good. He fights for the Jewish resistance is captured, pledges his allegiance to Rome, proceeds to go to Rome, and then writes up for the Romans Jewish histories. And while those were secured by the church, probably, for a number of centuries, it looks like the church may have added some, in fairness, we need to say, to what Josephus had to say about Jesus. There are parts where it's pretty clear, and most every scholar I've looked at agrees, this is authentic Josephus. And in the authentic Josephus includes references to Jesus being crucified and killed. Now, we looked at those references closely two weeks ago, but I bring them to mind to you as we look at this. What is the Muslim explanation in light of this evidence? The Muslim explanation typically is one of two things, depending upon which Muslim scholar you're reading. One explanation is that Simon of Serene was accidentally crucified instead of Jesus. Satan, maybe, clouded the eyes or the minds of the soldiers. Simon of Serene, you'll recall, in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus having to carry the cross, which was probably just the beam, the, the, the wide beam, the straight up and down pole probably stayed there and was used over and over and over again. But Jesus is carrying the beam. Those beams weigh 75 to 100 pounds. Jesus collapses under the weight. Simon of Serene is picked out and told to carry the beam the rest of the way. So one Muslim explanation is that Simon of Serene must have, after he got there, the soldiers thought, oh, this is the guy we're supposed to crucify because he carried it out here, and they accidentally put the wrong guy on the cross. 
Second option. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He was still alive. His legs were not broken like the other two thieves because he was deemed to be dead. But in fact, he wasn't dead. So when he was taken down and put into the tomb, it gave him three days to recover and he left. Okay? Now, I, I, I want to look at these things, but I want to use common sense when I look at them. So let's look at them together, okay? Here's my approach. First thing I want to do is I want to look at the events and make sure we've got all the events sketched out in our head. Then after we sketch out those events, let's go next and let's put down the historical research that we need to do to understand historically what it is we're reading on those events. You with me? And with all of that, we're going to do it under the aegis or the, the oversight of common sense. And I think part of that also needs to be, okay, well, if that's true, then where did these ideas come from that are in the Quran? Where is it that Muhammad got his ideas? How could he have missed this? Please understand, there is a lot of history that shows Muhammad. Now, Muhammad could not read or write, supposedly. He was illiterate, but clearly very smart and in some ways a very devout and good man. I'm not saying, nowhere in here am I saying that Muhammad sat down and maliciously made this up. I'm not his judge. I can't do that. But I do want to use common sense to see whether or not this is accurate. That's, that's my goal. So, what are the events? Well, we can read the events in the Gospels. Matthew 26, 57 through 68 gives us a good smattering of some of those events. Let's look at uh, look at them together and see uh, uh, how Matthew writes it up. Matthew twenty six. Here we go. Jesus is arrested. Following the arrest, Jesus is taken before Caiaphas, and then uh, uh, while he's in front of Caiaphas, he gets beaten. He gets struck, uh, he gets uh, abused, spat upon, mocked, he's up all night long, they slap him in the face, they spit in his face, they strike him, and they make fun of him, and they mock him. So he's now been awake for 24 hours, he's been physically abused, when they send him to Pilate in the morning, morning comes, they take counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bind him. So they take rope and they lead him away. They deliver him to Pilate. We have an interlude where Jesus hangs himself and then Jesus is before Pilate. While he's before Pilate, they have the conversation and Pilate decides he's going to give someone up. Decides it won't be Jesus because the crowd doesn't want Jesus given up. So when Pilate sees that he's gaining nothing, but a riot's beginning, he washes his hands and all the people, and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The people cry out, his blood be on us and our children. And then he releases Jesus, or Barabbas, and he scourges Jesus. Scourges Jesus. Now, I'm 56. I was brought up in an era by very loving parents, amazing parents. But my parents believed if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Now, it was always a last case scenario and it was the discipline that was chosen if none of the lesser disciplines worked. But when none of the lesser disciplines worked, I have been spanked. Not a lot, 
probably not enough to go past one hand. I mean, Catherine was the bad kid, and Holly. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. It was just Holly. It wasn't Catherine. I can remember in eighth grade competitive athletics, basketball, the coach sent us out to the gym. Coach said in the gym, lift weights to the weight room. We're out there. We're not lifting weights. We're cutting up. Coach comes out. He sees we're cutting up. He lines the entire basketball team up on the wall. And we all put our hands on the wall. And he started at one end with this wooden paddle. And we got what we called wax. Whack. 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 Now, if we're not careful, we'll have a tendency to read a passage like this and think Jesus must have been given wax or a spanking. And that's only if we don't understand the events within their historical context. So if we go back to the PowerPoint and we add to it, John gives a good account too, the historical research becomes very important. Scourging was a Roman punishment. It means something very specific. There were Roman soldiers that were trained to give scourgings. They were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S, which is interesting because when I was a kid, they also called it getting licks as well as getting wax. The lictor was a trained Roman soldier, trained and given a job title. I mean, it's like they had a toga with a, a little label on it instead of like auto mechanic. It said lictor. And the way it was done, there was a post, and you were tied to the post. And the Roman soldier, the lictor, took the flagellum in Latin. We get the word flagellate from it. The flagellum. The flagellum was a wooden stick, pole, that that had leather strings coming off of it. Leather, leather cables and tied into the leather were bits of metal, nails, hooks, broken pottery, glass, if you will. The goal behind a scourging or a Roman flogging was not to make someone wish they hadn't done it again. The goal was to truly tear the flesh off the body. Let me read you a historical account of a flogging result. Book 4 of Eusebius, chapter 15, verse 4. Eusebius is writing here about uh, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. And Eusebius often gives free extra information when he writes, especially on martyrdoms. So here he is writing on on, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. He says, before the account of Polycarp's death, and he's going to ultimately quote from an account of Polycarp's death, and, and he says, before I quote that, before the account of Polycarp's death, they, these people he's quoting, gave the account of the other martyrs and showed what firmness they evinced against the tortures they endured. Look at this. For, said they, and now he's quoting, those standing around were struck with amazement at seeing them lacerated with scourges, with the flagellum. This is a Roman scourging. Lacerated with scourges to their very blood and arteries. So that now the flesh concealed in the very inmost parts of the bodies and the bowels themselves were exposed to view. Then they were laid upon conch shells from the sea and on sharp heads and points of spears. And they go on to talk, he goes on to talk about how they died. 
That's not unique to Eusebius. You can read it in Livy and others. That the scourging was one where it was not at all uncommon for the person being scourged to die from the scourging. I mean, it's ripping open blood vessels. It's truly tearing the flesh off the bones. There are multiple accounts of people whose intestines spill out because it's ripped through the abdominal wall and the abdominal muscles. That's what Jesus endured after having been up all night and already been beaten and already been bound. In the historical context, that's when Jesus is made to carry the cross beam that's 75 to 100 pounds, and he can't make it outside the city. Jesus was a carpenter by trade. He'd carried wood all of his life. Carpenters, which also include stonemasons, were pretty stout people. Because they not only... They didn't call Home Depot and have the wood delivered. They'd go out and cut the trees. They'd haul the lumber. They'd mason the stones and haul the stones. I was talking to Weston Fields is here this morning. Weston runs the Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation. He's the reason we've got translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the scrolls untranslated. He still travels the world to raise the funds to get those things done. An amazing job. But Weston was telling me that he used to live in this suburb of Jerusalem where an interesting discovery was made in a cave from an excavation actually was being done in 1968, I believe. The excavation was being done at a time where it's really interesting to go back. You can read people who sometimes in the name of Christianity, are pretty harsh about their belief in the Bible. And they would write about the crucifixion of Jesus and they would say this is obviously fictionalized because the Romans didn't use nails. And when Jesus would say to Thomas, hey, put your hands through the nail holes, there wouldn't have been nails, especially through the feet. Because we've got 300 accounts plus of Roman crucifixion in ancient writings. But we don't, you, you can't go get a picture. Nobody's iPhone was working then. And so we didn't have pictures. So there were a lot of scholars who said there's no indication that nails went through the feet. And some write derisively of the Bible before 1968. When in the suburb of Jerusalem, they came upon an ossuary, a bone box, that contained the bones of someone who'd been crucified. A young man, probably around the mid-twenties in age. And the nail was still through the bone in his ankle, in his foot. And so you had the rusted nail, the Roman spike. And it's interesting to read the write-ups. And there have been a number of different people who've written on this, a number of different scholars. They had to rebury the bones pretty quickly so we don't have the most full and accurate analysis that we could do today scientifically with those bones. But... As I've read it, some of the best synopsis seems to be the idea that the feet were actually nailed perhaps both sides to the cross with a wood plate on the outside so that the person couldn't take their feet and rip the nail through by taking their foot off. There seems to be an indication also For this young man that was crucified in the bone box, there are some marks on his arm bones in a place where it looks like his arms were nailed as well, though other scholars disagree with that. But the eyewitness, Professor Haas, who's the only one to have really seen those bones before they were reinterred, said that that's what he believed them to be. The details don't matter. I'm sure people were crucified in lots of different ways, depending upon the soldier, the time, the place, the day. But the crucifixion itself was always final. There's not, out of 300 accounts of crucifixions, there's not one where someone survived. Much less someone in the condition Jesus would have been in after the scourging, where he wasn't even able to carry his own cross. By the way, 
if I'm looking at that historical research and I'm using common sense, how do you mistake someone who's been scourged, which typically happened before crucifixion, not always, but certainly did to Jesus, for a man who's picked out of the crowd because he's strong enough to carry the beam the rest of the way? That's not common sense to me. That the Roman soldiers would accidentally consider Simon of Serene to be the man who's been scourged and had the skin and muscle ripped off his bones. That's not an easy distinction to lose. I don't care what kind of glasses they needed. You're going to pick up on that when you're so close to a man that you're putting nails through his feet and you're putting nails through his arms. Common sense tells me that. Common sense tells me that Jesus is not going to endure what he endured, be on the cross. The Roman soldiers put a spear in his side to check on him. And these men who make a living out of killing people are supposed to have been misinformed and hadn't figured out Jesus was dead. And so they take him down from the cross and they let someone wrap him up and bury him. And after two or three days with no hospital intensive care, this man who's had his guts ripped out, who's had his skin taken off his bones, reappears and he's fine after a couple of days of R&R. That does not make common sense to me. And I strongly suspect that rather than converting in mass all of the Jews that converted in mass because they saw the resurrected Jesus, they believed in the resurrected Jesus, I strongly suspect instead they would have said, well, it turned out he wasn't dead after all. And worshipped him as an untillable Messiah instead of a resurrected Messiah. Common sense. So where did Muhammad get it so wrong? Can we trace this back to anything other than just a malicious makeup of a story? Absolutely. There's a lot that's contained about the life of Jesus in the Quran that clearly is closely related to other fables and other Christian stories that were in circulation at the time. We know through a fair reading of history that almost immediately within the church, immediately, within decades of the church as the, the Christian faith started to meld with Greek mysticism and Greek philosophy, something the Jewish faith was already doing with Philo in Egypt, for example, but as the Christian faith was doing this, it, the, the Christian faith took on some heretical perspectives. One of the most pronounced heresies of the early church was what we call the Gnostic heresy. And it clearly grew out of this Greek concept that anything physical and fleshly is inferior to those things which are thoughtful. And unseen ideas, words, the soul, the essence of a person. And so within this heresy, as this heresy melds together, there were a group of people who tried to teach, you know, if the flesh is bad, then one of the biggest problems is how could Jesus, the ultimate good, have been in flesh? So the Gnostics taught that Jesus was not in flesh. Certainly, the different schools of thoughts, lots of different ways of teaching it. But out of that Gnostic heresy came certain Gospels that were very interesting to people. Our four Gospels that were written by the Apostles are under apostolic authority. Our four Gospels don't give much about the childhood of Jesus. But there was a great desire among people to know about that. The ears were itching to be tickled. And so the Gnostic Gospels would frequently 
try to give information about the infancy of Jesus and the childhood of Jesus. So we're able to see some stories in the Quran that echo things that were already present in Christian fable. For example, in the fifth surah, verse 110, Allah will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, you make out of clay, as it were, the figure of a bird by my leave, and you breathe into it, and it becomes a bird by my leave. And you heal those born blind, the lepers, by my leave. Well, the Gospels truly account for Jesus healing the blind, for Jesus healing the lepers. But where's this idea of Jesus makes a bird out of clay come from? If we go back, we can find the infancy gospel of Thomas. A Gnostic gospel that was written well past the apostolic age. And in the infancy gospel, it talks about this little child, Jesus, when he was five years old, was playing at the ford of a brook. And having made soft clay, he fashioned thereof twelve sparrows. Jesus claps, actually he did it on the Sabbath. And so some of the Jews supposedly are upset and his dad's upset and the Jews come down and say, how dare you do this on the Sabbath? At which point, according to the story, Jesus claps his hands together. He cries out to the sparrows and says, go. And these clay sparrows become real sparrows and take off. Now, that's a fable. It's a fable in a Gnostic gospel. We're able very clearly to trace not only the fable, but we're able to trace the theology that produced it. But that was a common fable, and that was a common concept that Muhammad, who was not able to read and write, who would not be reading the gospels, would certainly have an awareness of. Now, Muhammad had a number of wives. One of his wives was a Christian. One of his cousins was a Christian. One of his slaves were a Christian. The Arabian Peninsula where he was had a number of Christians. There were monastic communities. Some of which Muhammad seems to have visited when he was 9, 10 in that age. Let me give you another example real quick. She, Mary, points to the baby. Now we're reading from the Quran here points to Jesus, the baby, infant Jesus, and said, how can, the the people who are with Mary say, how can we talk to one who's a child in the cradle? And the infant Jesus talks as an infant and says, I am indeed a servant of Allah. He hath given me revelation and made me a prophet. He hath made me blessed. The idea of Jesus as an infant talking to his mother is also one that's found in the Arabic infancy gospel, which seems to have been written around a 100 years before Muhammad. Clearly a fable, centuries and centuries after the birth of Christ. But it says, He has said that Jesus spoke, and indeed when he was lying in his cradle, said to Mary his mother, I'm Jesus, the Son of God. The Logos, whom thou hast brought forth, as the angel Gabriel announced to thee, and my Father has sent me for the salvation of the world. Again, it's a concept that can find its... its the, the, the mistakes that I see in the Quran are mistakes that I can easily find them identified in history, how Muhammad may have understood them and put them into the Quran. Now, there's a core difference here in whether or not Jesus was crucified. I want to return to that as we bring this to a close. Because part of the Muslim argument is that if Jesus were truly God or a prophet, which the Muslim world accords Jesus to have been, if Jesus was a prophet, God never would have allowed a prophet to suffer such a humiliation as a crucifixion. It's one of the reasons that the Muslims will say that the Old Testament is corrupted, for example. Because David is seen as a prophet, and the Old Testament says that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And the Muslim view is, is that no man of God like David would have done such a thing. 
And the Bible's very different in that regard. Because the Muslim view is, is that God would so highly esteem a prophet that he would never allow a prophet like Jesus to suffer such a humiliating death. The Christian view is something that's very different. And this strikes at the core of Christianity and Muslim faiths. I believe that the Muslim view of God is a limited view of God. That God is much greater, even though the Muslims believe that Allah is great. I don't think they understand how great Allah really is. God is so great that God will suffer humiliation if it brings redemption to his people. I am the father of five. One of my daughters is sitting right over there. She is a freshman at Baylor. Go Tech. <laughs> Sorry. I can be a good father to her and still carry myself with dignity. But if you told me the only way to rescue my daughter and to save her life, or more, her soul, is for me to take off all of my dignity, for me to humiliate myself, for me to be punished unrighteously, for me to suffer when there is no basis for the suffering. If that's the only way I can save my daughter I would do it in a heartbeat. And would you look at me and say, what a bad father that he would suffer such humiliation? No, you would not. Because the God who's willing to suffer humiliation to save his people is a greater God in my mind. The God, the God, hear me here. See, this, the Muslim concept is, is our salvation is based upon deeds, quantity or quality. So if you've led a horrible life, but you will give yourself up in jihad uh, uh, and, and sacrifice your life for a higher calling, that quality of deed alone can endure you a higher place in paradise. It will so weigh. My Christian view of God is a higher view of God. My Christian view of God is one where God, the pure, 100% good God, will never be, He cannot exist in the presence of sinful beings without the sin being destroyed. So if I've got sin and I need to be in the presence of God, God is so great, He must see that the price for that sin is paid. He is a righteous God. And a righteous God is not a God who judges by 51%. He is so righteous, it takes a 100% righteous person to be in the presence of God. Where will I get that righteousness? I will not get it on my own. I've already blown it. I got no chance. But for a righteousness that comes through the death of Jesus who said, I don't deserve the death, I don't deserve the humiliation, I don't deserve this, but I'm going to do it because it's my way to reach those I love. I'm taking Mark Lanier's humiliation on, and I'm bearing Mark's humiliation, not mine. This is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, have the same attitude in yourself, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, even though he existed in the form of God, Allah in Arabic, the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. He emptied himself, he humiliated himself, and took on the form of a man. I got news for you. Just being human is a humiliation if you're God. And having become in form as a man, Paul writes, he humbled himself to other men to the point of death, even the humiliating death on a cross. 
Paul's not holding back. He's not hiding. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus had to do that to save us. So there's common sense. I've gone too long. Here are your points for home. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Yes, he was cursed. How could a prophet of God be cursed? Only by his own volition. And only on behalf of those who should bear the curse. He stepped in front of the bullet that was headed for you and me. He didn't deserve the bullet. But he threw his body in front of it for us. That's what happened. And I need to show gratitude with everything that I have. Number two. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The word of the cross may seem foolish. It may seem foolish to the Muslims. It may seem foolish to the pagans. It may seem foolish to people who go to church. But it's not foolish. It's something that empowers God to save His people without sacrificing His just character. It is where perfect love and perfect justice meet in that act of mercy. And that's where I want to be found. Last point. If we've been united with Him in a death like His will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I like his death. Why? Oh, you like the death of Jesus? Look, i got to be clear with you. I feel bad for what happened to him. I have great gratitude. Oh, I wish it didn't have to be so. But without it, I have no chance in the presence of a holy God. I want to be resurrected from this death. And thankfully, I have a resurrected God who will work that same power within me. So with that, I'm not a Muslim. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, I ask you to pour your blessings out on everyone today. I pray that this message of your cross, what it means, your resurrection, how it changes everything for us, will ring out with truth of your greatness, your greatness in justice, your greatness in love, your greatness in mercy, that you are not just God, but you are Father who loves us as a father loves his children with a perfect love, Father, not an imperfect human father's love. And may your name be exalted above all names.